So let's look at Hosea. Hosea was a preacher, a prophet. He lived in the northern kingdom of Israel before the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrian Empire in 722 B.C. The theme of the book of Hosea, if you want to write it at the beginning of your, of your Bible or in the notes of your Bible, is that our unfaithfulness to God brings disaster, but God's faithfulness brings hope. Our unfaithfulness brings disaster, but God's faithfulness brings hope. And so that's the theme of the book of Hosea, but I don't think that that is what Hosea is most famous for, do you? (laughs) If I was to say the word Hosea, the prophet Hosea, he's known for one thing, and that is that he married a prostitute. He married a wife, as the ESV says, of whoredom, an unfaithful wife named Gomer. And I, I just think that is such a beautiful name. I don't know why people don't name girls Gomer anymore, but that was the name of Hosea's wife. So the story of Hosea and his wife Gomer make up the first three chapters of the book of Hosea. And so his marriage to Gomer and the children that are born wind up being a parable of God's relationship with the nation of Israel. And really, uh, with all of God's people, we could say, Hosea represents the Lord, who is like a faithful husband, and Gomer, the prostitute, represents Israel. And so God is using this marriage to show us what he is like and to show what his people are like. So look there at verse 1 of chapter 1. The word of the Lord <coughs> came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. That sort of sets the, the setting or the time frame. Uh, we know what we're dealing with, that he was working during the times of those kings of Judah in the south and during the, kingdom, uh, the, king, uh, the reign of Jeroboam in the north. So our first section is verse 2 and 3, where Hosea ties the knot. Let's look there at verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore a son. So scholars wrestle with this question. When Hosea married Gomer, was she a faithful, pure woman before he married her? And then did she forsake him afterward and become unfaithful? Or did he go and find a woman who was already engaged in that kind of activity and marry her? And I think the answer to that depends on how far the metaphor goes. I think he went and married a prostitute. You know, that you could disagree with that, and that wouldn't be the end of the world. But let me explain why I think he married a prostitute. Because when God elected Israel to be his people, they were not faithful people. They were no different than all the other sinful people in the world who needed redemption. Go in your Bibles and turn back over to Ezekiel. Look at Ezekiel chapter 16. Everybody just turn there. There's a Bible in front of you if you don't have one. And there's actually, in Ezekiel chapter 16, God tells us how he called Israel to be his people. There's, a, there's a, a story in here in Ezekiel chapter 16 of God calling his people. 
So look at Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 1. Ezekiel 16, verse 1. Still hear the pages turning. It's a good sound. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 1. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. And thus says the Lord to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite. Your mother was a Hittite. The heritage, he's saying, are from those who were idol worshipers and unfaithful. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of those things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field. You were abhorred on the day you were born. You weren't wanted. You were unloved. And verse 6, the Lord says, And when I passed by and I saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, Live. And I said to you in your blood, Live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown. And yet you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And you became mine. He took the one that nobody wanted. And made her his. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. But look at verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and played the tramp. Because of your renown, and lavished your whorings on any passerby, and your beauty became his. That's a powerful chapter, isn't it? If you can go on and read it, uh, it's, it's quite graphic, uh, and yet it describes the same thing that's going on here in this parable in the first three chapters of Hosea. I could be wrong, but I think this metaphor of, of marriage is saying that the woman was unwanted, unclean, uncovered, and this woman who was representing Israel experienced incredible love and adoration from her husband. But then she went back to what was familiar. She went back to what was maybe even seemed safe for her rather than living in light of her new identity. And remember, Paul said about these stories, when we read these stories, the value of the Old Testament, the Old Testament is for us. Paul said it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. These stories in the Old Testament are for our instruction. Listen to what he said, the apostle. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So what is the warning here? What is the instruction here? 
It is that you can experience remarkable redemption and salvation. And instead of responding in love to the one who's redeemed you, you might respond in the way Israel did, by going through religious motions, but in actuality living like the rest of the world. Is it possible that you have found safety, and and, and safety as far as what seems safe to the world, and you find comfort in the world's comforts, and you do what seems natural to fearful people who lurk in the shadows, rather than living in light of your new identity in Christ, living in the light of love. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So this marriage sets the stage. Israel has been brought into the light. They have been redeemed. They've been clothed in fine silk, linen, leather, gold, silver, crowns, everything, becoming to royalty. And then they went back to the darkness. And God says, that's just like an unwanted woman who against all odds becomes the wife of a faithful, loving husband who is royalty and then walks out at night and gives herself to other men. And that just makes us shake our heads, doesn't it? It perplexes us and seems absurd, as I'll mention here in a moment. And yet, do we do the same thing? Do we find safety, security, and hope in the dark? Do we, do we find ourselves heading back to the dark? Or do we find ourselves saying, I want to do uh, what, what I, want to, I want to love the Lord my God. I want, I want to be His. Uh, or is our life an expression of love for Him? Or do we keep going back into the shadows? Well, what is to happen to such a wife who does this to her husband? The message of what was to happen to Israel, who the wife in this story represents, was told through the names of the children she had. First, Hosea and Gomer welcomed a bouncing baby boy named Scattered by God. <laughs> Don't name your kid that. Actually, the name is Jezreel. And the word Jezreel is it's a city named Jezreel. And the meaning of the word Jezreel is scattered by God. So look what it says in verse 4. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, or scattered by God. For in just a little while I will punish, I will scatter the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So verses Four and five are a prophecy telling the nation of Israel that they are going to be judged and that they will be defeated militarily for something that happened uh, that was committed by this king named Jehu in the valley of Jezreel or in the city of Jezreel. So we need some background on 2 Kings chapter 9 to understand verses 4 and 5. So the Lord says, name the baby Jezreel. Jezreel is a city that is famous for its vineyard. Or vineyards. And there was a particular vineyard that was owned by a man named Naboth. And his vineyard was coveted by the king of Israel, whose name was Ahab. And you remember, Ahab was married to Jezebel. And Ahab wanted this vineyard, and so he killed Naboth and basically stole the vineyard. And Ahab was married to this woman, uh, Jezebel. And what I didn't mention about her name is that this woman was so wicked that. People call someone a Jezebel now to insult them or to say that they're mean. And so these two were married and they were in power in Israel. 
And Ahab died in a battle, and a few years later, Jezebel was reigning still as the queen mother, and her son Joram was the king of Israel. And the prophet Elijah tells a commander in Israel's army, he tells this commander named Jehu, he says, you're going to be the next king of Israel, and you're going to destroy the house of Ahab. And so Jehu sets out with an army, and they head to this city of Jezreel where the king was, and Jehu kills him. And there happens to be the king of Judah there as well, and he kills him. And then he, has, he finds Jezebel and tells the eunuchs that are in the room with her to throw her over the side of the house, and she dies. And then he continues to slaughter the house of Ahab. They find 70 of Ahab's sons, 70 princes, and they take all their heads and they pile them up in two piles next to the city gate. He killed all the Baal worshipers throughout Israel. And judgment on the house of Ahab came. But as Jehu carried out what God was having him to do, he went too far. He was ruthless. He was cruel. He was bloodthirsty. He did the right thing, but he did it in the wrong way. That's the conundrum. When we start to think about this story, it's amazing to think that God can use sinful acts to accomplish his purposes. Now you look at me and you're like, that is the craziest thing I've ever heard. But think about the death of Jesus. That is an example where God used the sinful, wicked acts of men to accomplish the greatest thing that he ever did. So God can use sinful acts to accomplish his purposes. The death of Jesus, a great example. But even if sin does manage to be used by God to accomplish his purpose, even if sin is somehow ordained for a purpose, as it says in Acts chapter 4 of those who killed Jesus, it says that the sinful acts were desired by God, but we have to understand that they were freely chosen by the ones who did evil. Now, maybe that's not the most uh, uh, precise way to say that. We could say God allowed or ordained that evil. He had a minting. He had a purpose for it. But always when someone sins, who's to blame for the sin? The person who committed it. The person who freely chose to do the evil. So when someone sins, they sin because they desire to do it. They freely choose to do the evil. In other words, what those people who meant for evil to kill Jesus on the cross, God meant for his own purposes. And their purposes were completely evil. God's purposes were completely right. See, God's will is compatible with our own free will so that God never violates our will, yet his will is always perfectly accomplished. Now, how that works is a mystery. It's not been revealed to us yet, but it is taught in Scripture. Otherwise, how could God ever hold someone responsible for their sin if he made them do it, if it wasn't their free choice? So Jehu, while he was doing something, it was God's plan for Ahab's house to be destroyed. God had been prophesied already. Jehu was the instrument under which Ahab, that wicked king, his his house was to be destroyed. And yet in the way that Jehu carried it out, he sinned. He did wrong. And here is the truth about the way God is just. Every single wrong has to be punished. Nobody's going to get away with anything. Nobody escapes punishment. One thing the Bible is absolutely clear about is that every last sin will be punished. And the punishment will be exacted on you or it's going to be exacted on Jesus on the cross. You're going to pay for it or Jesus is going to have paid for it. Your sins will be placed on him 
or your sins and the punishment for it will be placed on you. That's what the Bible's clear about. So go back to verse 4 of uh, Hosea chapter 1. So the Lord says, Call this baby boy Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So what happened in Jezreel when Jehu sinned will be punished. And it will happen in the valley of Jezreel. And the the bow will be broken. It will be a battle. And this battle will take place in the valley of Jezreel, which is also called the Valley of Megiddo, which is a very famous battlefield, and it will be an even more famous battlefield at the end of time. And at that place, God says he will scatter his people in judgment because of their unfaithfulness. And look at verse 6. So we have baby Jezreel, and then uh, Gomer goes off, becomes pregnant again, and they have a sweet baby girl named No Mercy. Now, if you're going to name a baby girl, name her Mercy. Don't name her No Mercy unless you want her to be a, a great wrestler or something. So she conceived again and bore a daughter, verse 6. And the Lord said to him, call her name Lo Ruhama. Call her name No Mercy. For I, will have, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. And I will not save them by bow or sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. We have a prophecy there about Judah in verse 7. So God was going to bring judgment on Israel. And there would be no mercy. There would be no pity. They would not be saved. But Judah, on the other hand, would be saved. And so at this point, you're saying to me, I don't understand what you're talking about. What is the difference between Israel and Judah? And that gets a little confusing sometimes, doesn't it? We have to know our Bibles. This is why we need to learn our Bibles, isn't it? So that when someone's preaching and we're making references to these things that have happened in the history of Israel, so you'll understand what they are. So God is going to bring judgment on Israel, but not on Judah. So let's figure out the difference between Israel and Judah. So after King Saul, who ruled for 40 years over the 12 tribes, remember the 12 tribes of Jacob, after they come out of Egypt, they're ruled by judges, then they decide they want a king. And so there's a king over the 12 tribes. The first one's name is Saul. The second one's name is David. Okay, we're playing Bible trivia here. And what's the third one's name? Solomon. They each rule for 40 years. But after Solomon, after his reign, his son takes over and says, well, if you think, if you think my dad taxed you, and remember, remember what Solomon did, he built the temple. And that took a lot of gold. And that was very expensive, and that cost a lot of money in taxes. So his son says, well, if you think my dad taxed you, just wait and see what I'm going to do. And so there were 12 tribes. The 10 tribes in the north heard him say that, and they said, no new taxes. We're not doing this. We're not going to play this game. All right? And so they broke off. And so the 10 tribes that broke away from David's line... Uh, the, the, the rulers that were ruling in Jerusalem, we call them Israel. And then there were two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, in the south, and they remained the nation of Judah. So you had, or the kingdom, you had the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And they just sort of coexisted there after the kingdom split for, for hundreds of years. But then they both came to an end. But the, the house of Israel is going to come to an end by the hands of the Assyrians 
the house of Judah is not going to come to an end or be taken into exile for a, few, for a couple hundred more years. Uh, 722 is when Israel goes into exile. Uh, 586 is when Judah goes into exile. But here's the difference. Israel goes into exile and they never come back. Judah goes for 70 years to Babylon, and they do come back. So there's a difference between the way that they're judged for their unfaithfulness. There are about 20 kings that each kingdom had. So Israel having about 20 kings, it might have been more than, was it 20 or 28? I can't remember. But they had about the same number of kings. Uh, I think it was 20 kings. Uh, Yet uh, Israel had zero good kings. So for all those hundreds of years when Israel, those 10 tribes were ruling themselves, no good kings. And you say, well, what about Judah? Did they just have all great kings? No, they only had eight. But that was enough <laughs> to, to spare them. They were faithful enough. They would, they would get way out of bounds and God would raise up a king that would bring them back in. But that never happened for Israel. And so they're gonna be judged and God says, you will be shown no mercy. Judah would be shown mercy. Remember Hezekiah, this story of Hezekiah when he's threatened by Sennacherib and the Assyrians are coming and they're telling him, we're going to destroy you. And he takes that threat and what does he do? He takes it and he spreads it out before the Lord and they're delivered and the, the, the spirit of the Lord comes in, the angel of the Lord comes in and in one night as the Assyrians are camped there outside Jerusalem, they kill 185,000 Assyrian soldiers and they have to retreat and go back. They were spared, just as it says here. They were saved, not by the bow or by the sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. But there would be no deliverance like that for Israel. And in 722, they would be scattered and lost. And we even call those the lost tribes of Israel. They would never return in that form again. Scattered in no mercy. And then finally, they have one more child. She goes off again, comes back. They have a bouncing baby boy named Not My People. So when she had weaned no mercy, verse 8, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name Lo-Ami, Not My People, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Can you imagine something so terrifying being said? Can you imagine a prophet coming in here and saying, even though you've been gathering every single week, all these years, here on this corner... You've gone astray, and you're not my people, and I'm not your God. How terrifying would that be? My mom wrote a book that we, she gave us all this Christmas, and it's a really awesome book. My mom is a great writer and tells a great story. And uh, if y'all have ever met her, y'all know how awesome she is. But she was remembering as she was writing this book, she was remembering when my sister was in drill team at Euless Trinity High School, and when they were on the drill team, they had to buy a bunch of costumes for all the different dances. And it was very expensive. And she said she was writing a check uh, one day, and she was lamenting over it to my dad. I can't believe how expensive it is to put her in drill team. And uh, Chuck, I think you might even actually know the feeling here. But the, the, he had a daughter in the same drill team. But she, she was writing the check, and my dad walked up as she complained about how much it was. And he said, be glad you're not giving that money to the bondsman, you know, that you're not having to pay this to the bail bondsman. And that puts it in perspective, doesn't it? Well, as a criminal defense attorney, you often talk to people who are very disappointed parents. Some have written check after check after check to the bail bondsman. They've taken out mortgages to pay legal fees and fines and restitution. 
And so I would get my client, I would get a fax. This was back in those days. I would get a fax, you got a new client, go down. You've been appointed to represent this person. Go down to the jail. You talk on the little phone, like on TV, and you know they're listening. And you say, hey, be careful what you say. They're listening to you. They're probably recording it. And they would say, listen, I, got, I, I need you to talk to my parents for me. I can't get a hold of my mom and dad. Will you talk to my parents for me? And I was like, give me the number. What do you want? Well, tell them to, tell them to come put money on my books. Tell them to bail me out of here. And they would be uh, really worked up about it. And so I would go back to my office, and I would call mom or dad. And they'd answer the phone, and sometimes they would help. But many times there were parents that would just say, you know what? I can't do this anymore. You know, I'm done. I'm done with this. We've done everything. And she isn't going to change unless she faces the actual consequences for the actions. And there seemed to be, of course, and then they would kind of be mad at me for calling. <laughs> I'm like, listen, don't shoot the messenger. But it seemed to be in some of those cases that there was kind of a washing of the hands. You know, they were like, well, I just, you know, I can't do this. Um, you know, and, you, and, and I don't know if this was the actual attitude, but it was hard for me as a young parent to understand it whenever a parent seemed to say something like, you know, it's like, it's like we don't even know who she is, she's not ours. And that, that was the way it felt. It felt like at that moment there was a disowning. And that, that, was, that was really hard. And so I think it seems to us, as I mentioned, just wild to think about why Israel would have been unfaithful to God. As I'm talking there to the parents on the phone who have done everything, why does this girl, this defendant, why does she keep going astray? Why can't she see how much she's loved and respond to the love? Why does she keep looking for it in other places? But when we read stories like that, when I tell you a story about someone who had hit rock bottom, what it should do is cause you to stop and think about areas in your life where you're not faithful to God. Where are we going that way? And though we might like to identify with Hosea and say, I can't believe his wife acted that way, we need to always make sure that we're identifying with Gomer. We're the sinners. We're the despicable. But we are the ones that God has chosen to love anyway. And this parable teaches us something. It teaches us that God can bring people into our lives, even into the most intimate relationships of our lives, and those people can hurt us. And they can be unfaithful to us. And yet, some of those most difficult relations we have, God is using those relationships to teach us, to form us, to make us, to mold us, so that his will might be accomplished in our lives. Every relationship, as we learned in our biblical counseling study, every relationship is holy. God can use the great ones, and he can use the terrible ones. So no matter what that is, no matter what that is, understand God's working and he's doing something. God's intention for Israel is that they would be his people. Really what the whole Bible is about is that God is redeeming and bringing a people to himself. But it's so, it's like nails on a chalkboard. It's a sound we don't normally think about hearing from the Bible to see God saying, you're not mine. You will be scattered. You'll receive no mercy. You're not mine. But the good news is that's not the end of the story. God has a plan to restore his people. 
And maybe we aren't able to do this as parents or as people. We should strive for it. But God can always choose to forgive, no matter what we have done. So against all hope, against all hope, there is always hope for God's people. There is always hope, even for people that are in a a nation that's going to be judged and scattered, there's always hope for that person who will turn around to God and say, I repent. And even though you slay me, I will trust you. God will not have his purposes diminished. His promises will not be thwarted. His promises to David and Abraham will not be broken. And so we see that hope in verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured and cannot be numbered. And we think, well, what, maybe that's talking about when, when Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel brought them all back. But they didn't bring back that many. They didn't bring back as many as the, the sands on the seashore. Now, that could be a partial fulfillment of this prophecy, But he says, the number of the children of Israel, the number of God's people, of God's children, will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, you are children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel." Say to your brothers, chapter 2, verse 1, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. This, I believe, is a reference to the church, to those for of all time, those who have trusted by faith in God's promises. That will include Jews and Gentiles, descendants of Judah and Israel, and all God's people will be united under Jesus. And this is where you and I come in, in this great big story of God gathering and redeeming a people for himself. We are like Israel. We have all gone astray. We've sinned and chased after other gods. Even though we owe our utter allegiance to God, and though we deserve to be judged and scattered, and though we should receive no mercy, and though we do not deserve to be called the children of God, God sent his son, his child, to redeem us. He sent his child to receive the judgment that we were due, to give us mercy that we did not deserve, and to make us children of the one true God. It's amazing that Hosea chapter 1 is about children who are being born, who who prophesied judgment, and it's about birth, and it's about children. And then you turn to John chapter 1, and you look at verse 9, and it says, Jesus, the true light, the one The one it's talking about there in verses 10 through 13, the one it's talking about, excuse me, 10 through 11, the Jesus that is being spoken of here is revealed there as the true light in 1 John 1, verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone. This one was coming into the world. And he was in the world. And the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. He came to the Jews, and they did not receive him. They didn't all just welcome him in. But verse 12 says, to all who did receive him, and Jews received him, and Gentiles received him, and to all those who did receive him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There's a lot of things being born in the Bible. 
You got Jezreel, Lo Rahama, and Lo Ami. But here's the question for you today. There's a birth talked about right there in John chapter 1 that should cause us to ask the question, have I been born again? I might have been born abhorred as a child of wrath, but because of what Jesus Christ has done, I can be born and have the right to become a child of God. Has that happened in your life? Have you come to a point where you've recognized that you're a sinner, that you deserve God's judgment, but that he has offered mercy to you through his son, Jesus Christ, and that by faith, if you will put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you can be a child of God. That wrath that resides rightfully on sinners who've gone the the wrong way because every sin has to be punished, right? If God doesn't do it, he's not just, but he's made a way to be just. The sins are all punished on Christ on the cross, and he's made a way to be the justifier through the work of Jesus Christ. So that if you will put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he will clothe you with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And as Tracy prayed, we can't be holy. And she's right, isn't she? There's no way we could ever be perfectly holy and righteous in and of ourselves. But there is a way we can be holy and righteous if Jesus gives us that holiness and righteousness that he earned and he deserved through what he did, the way he lived, the way he died. That's proven through his resurrection and ascension. And if you'll put your trust in what Jesus Christ has done, you won't be scattered. You won't be no mercied. And you will be one of his people, a child of God. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come here on a cold day. And we pray that just as uh, the cold weather just uh, uh, as we opened the door, it took us, it just shocked us and takes us by surprise when when the temperatures are this cold. Father, would your word take us in that way today? Would it, would it confront us? And would it cause us to change and to be different? Would your Holy Spirit work in our lives that we might be born and become children of God? We're so thankful for the work of Jesus Christ and his life and his death, his burial and his resurrection. And we pray for the one who's lost today that they might know that because Jesus lives, they too can live and know eternal life. So Father, move and work and and do whatever you have to do today that you might bring your children into your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. For our benediction, because he lives.